As I said, our text tonight is verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we know that this is the resurrection day and we rejoice in the fact that the Lord Jesus is risen and that literal bodily resurrection of the Saviour is absolutely central to the gospel, to biblical Christianity. And we rejoice again this night because the tomb is empty. We consider that this morning. Christ is risen. He is triumphant. Death has been conquered. And all who trust in Christ have a, a certain hope that is beyond this world. And really this evening I want to spend some more time looking at what the resurrection means for us if we believe. Resurrection which of course is a theme throughout the scriptures and certainly in this well-known, well-loved passage in 1 Corinthians. In fact, there is nowhere in the Bible where the subject is so fully discussed and revealed as here, as Paul writes the church at Corinth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And really to start with a, a very simple question, what do we mean by a resurrection? Well, resurrection means the body in which we live dying and then being raised again to life. The same body raised again to life. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and his coming back from the dead is essential for us to believe. That is the whole construction of Paul's argument here, what he is sharing and expressing and applying to the people at Corinth. Now, friends, there are many, many people who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And it was true back when Paul was writing, and it's certainly true today. And people think that the whole idea of coming back from the dead is ridiculous. Now, I've mentioned before about a, a book called Who Moved the Stone? And it was written by a man called Frank Morrison. And uh, he was a young man. He, he didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But unlike many today, he actually was very respectful concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he thought he was a great man, a, a great figure in history, a great teacher. But he didn't believe in the resurrection. And he had this desire. He wanted to study the person of Jesus from a historical perspective. And the years went by and he had no time really to look into these things. But in the course of his life, as he got a bit older, the time came when he could study the Gospels and as part of that, to look more closely at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as he had intended all those years before. Now, his purpose, he explains, was very clear. He wanted to show that Jesus was a good man, but whilst that was the case, he wanted to show that the resurrection was a foolish legend invented by the early church. And so he collected all his notes and his quotations, all he could to write a book proving that Christ never rose. Well, you know what happened. The more he studied the Gospels and the more he looked into the New Testament, you know, God began to work in his heart. And the more he was convinced in the total opposite direction that Jesus was who he says he was and that he rose again. And he said, I am writing the book that I never intended to write. He set out to disprove the resurrection, but as he really examined the scriptures, as he really came to consider the evidence, everything to do with it, 
God in his grace convinced him of the resurrection, the Lord working in his heart. And so this man wrote a book defending and proving and demonstrating the truth of the resurrection. Because it is pivotal. It is absolutely key in the message of Christianity. If Jesus is just a good man, if Jesus is just a, a great teacher, and of course he is those things, but he never rose again, then as we'll see, this is pointless. And so the resurrection is utterly central to what is a foundation in regards to true Christianity. And so what we see is Paul here answering the doubters in the church at Corinth. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the answer to doubters. He says, now Christ is risen. Now, as a little bit of a background, Paul was writing to this church at Corinth, and it was a church with a lot of problems, many challenges. Of all the churches in the New Testament, this one at Corinth was the most impure. They were believers on the whole, but they were full of errors in doctrine and practice, and some were very serious. For example, a party spirit had, had taken hold. So some said, well, we're for Christ. And some said, well, we're for Paul. And some for Apollos, etc. Or in the matter of worship, it had been corrupted with the abuse of gifts which God had given in those early years. And it was no longer to the glory of God. And it had become corrupted and difficult. The Lord's table was not observed in a, a decent and reverential manner. And Many, many more things could be added. But amongst all of this, there were people in and around this church who did not believe in the resurrection and were forward in that idea. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were those who had come into the church who were teaching that there was no such thing as the dead being raised. They denied resurrection, and they denied Christ's resurrection. And so this is a fundamental error, and that is why Paul has to deal with it. Now, also, you need to know that it wasn't uncommon. Corinth was not the only place where this problem arose. In 2 Timothy 2, there are those that Paul identifies again who deny the resurrection. And he uses very strong language to, to deal with this. He describes the effect of that denial as a, as a cancer which spreads and causes devastating harm. It strikes in one part of the body and before long it causes trouble in all different places if it's not dealt with. And so Paul says when one of the great truths like the resurrection is denied, it poisons the minds of the people. It destroys faith. It undermines the gospel. Sadly, we live in a day when error has pervaded many churches and the impact upon the people has been so sad. Many are not interested in the truth and the word. Their minds have been poisoned by error and falsehood and lies. And so Paul is dealing with this. And that's why I have this, this wonderful exposition of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means. He gives arguments and he appeals to people's minds, and he reasons with great power and with great clarity. Look at verse 14. He says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And he goes on from that verse to work through a list of these terrible consequences. If Christ isn't risen, preaching is a waste of time. The Christian faith is pointless. 
We are liars. We are still lost in sin. There is no hope for us or for those who have already died believing. And drawing it together in verse 19, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Friend, it's devastating. You know, I wonder if you've ever thought about that. You know, it means, if the resurrection isn't true, it means we're wasting our time here. It means that we're wasting our lives if Christ is not risen. It means that if our our Christian faith is a, a waste of time, we are actually worse off than those who are out in the world living it up for the now and getting their fill of worldly pleasure. You know, at least they, they've got some happiness in the world, some sort of pleasure. Whereas believers, you know, we, we discipline ourselves, we deny ourselves, we desire to honor and please the God we love. We turn away from those things that God has forbidden. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, if there's no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then it would be better to be a person of the world and enjoy the sins of this life because there's no hope. And so Christians, if there's no resurrection, are the most pitiable of all people if that has not taken place. And that's why I find it so perplexing and staggering that there are those who claim to be Christians and deny the resurrection. And I just think, what's the point? What is the point? You know, people used to shout in the open air when the gospel is being preached, you know, you're talking rubbish. It's nonsense. You're wasting your breath. Get a life. You know, if there's no resurrection, they're right. Everything we believe is a waste of time, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead. Everything is suspended on the supremely important fact that Jesus conquered the grave, that Jesus rose from the dead. Everything stands or collapses on the truth of the resurrection. It all depends that if there's no resurrection, we're still in our sins. If there's no resurrection, all our Christian friends and loved ones who have died, you know, they perish. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope for any of us. And Paul is using what is called in Latin, reductio ad absurdum. In other words, a a reduction to absurdity. He is showing the absurdity of not believing in the resurrection. It all focuses on that. That is what he is arguing. You know, my dear friends, I have to ask every one of you, do you believe that the body of Christ was dead for three days and then came back to life again? Do you believe that the day will come when you and your body will, having been dead perhaps for for centuries for all we know, come back again from the dead? Do you believe that? Are you convinced of it? Are you sure of it? Because that is what the Word of God teaches. And Paul, he sort of deals with all this and he he lays out the bleak reality of if there's no resurrection, but, and thank God for that word, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, we should rejoice as believers in the resurrection of Christ. All that it means for us. You know, this world is not our home. We are here temporarily. You know, it doesn't matter how young or old you are. Life is uncertain. Every one of us must die. We, we know that the grave awaits. That's why, you know, even in this past week, that is why committals can be so sobering for those present at the graveside. You know, as the, the coffin containing the body is, is lowered into the ground, 
And those few words are said, and then eventually the, the hole is filled with earth. And, you know, there may be a stone placed eventually with, with some details of the person or, or some message, but that's it. And time moves on and memories fade. And without a risen Christ, without the prospect of resurrection, it is so bleak. There's no hope except that one day the bodies of those who have trusted the Lord Jesus are going to be summoned by the risen Savior out of the grave to a glorious eternity. You know, that's the hope. How thankful we should be that there is a gospel to proclaim and that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and the resurrection and the life of all who are granted to believe. And so, friends, this is what Paul is arguing here. He's saying this is central. This is key. And I want just to spend a, a few moments thinking about what this means for us if we're believers. Well, it picks up on what we were looking at this morning. The resurrection of Jesus is central, but it's proof that believers will rise again. You know, Paul goes on to say the sure resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that believers will rise again. Christ is risen. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a special time of year when the fruit was ready. It was ripened. And the Lord set in place a ceremony for the people of Israel that when the harvest was ready, that before they ate any of these fruits or crops, they had to go into the field with a sickle and cut a handful or an armful, they cut a sheaf of it and brought it before the Lord. And they were saying, thanks be to God for his goodness to us, for remembering us for another year. They acknowledged that beyond the gift was the giver, was God. Now, that is something, by the way, that we would do well never to forget ourselves. We look beyond the gift to the giver. What we have is provided by the goodness of God. And so these first fruits would be to be offered to the Lord. And Paul uses this picture. And he says that Jesus, by rising from the dead, is the first fruit of those that slept. Now, in the first instance, he refers to Old Testament saints and all others who had died believing. They were asleep in Jesus. You know, we don't refer to unbelievers as being asleep. They are in everlasting punishment and will be raised again to face that ultimate condemnation. But God's people who believe in him, their bodies, though dead, are safe in Christ. Their souls are in glory. Their body is in the grave, still united to Christ in death. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he was the first fruits of a tremendous harvest, which is going to be brought home, not only, of course, of the Old Testament saints, but of all saints, old and in this new era. And during his earthly ministry, you know, it's remarkable. We have these great pictures. The Lord Jesus raised three people from the dead, as recorded in Scripture. And every time it was to prove his power over death. But I want you to see a progression in each one. I wonder if you've ever considered this before. So on one occasion, a young girl, she was only 12, she had died suddenly. And the people sent a message to the Lord Jesus, and he came Friends, he always comes to those in need who call upon his name. You know, if you long for him and you call, he will come. 
And the people were, were making great lamentation about the death of this young girl. They were wailing and they were mourning tremendous cries of anguish and sorrow over the death of this little girl. And when the Lord came, he asked, why all this? She's not dead, but sleeping. And their sorrow turned to scorn because they laughed at him. You see, they knew that she was dead. Well, Jesus puts them all out of the room except for the, the father, mother, and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And in that wonderful scene, he speaks to this little girl and he, he says in his own language, and there she is, and she's, she's dead. But he says, Talitha Kumai, little girl, get up. And she sat up and he returned her to her parents. You see, Jesus showed that he had power over death. They were astonished, but it was true. Now notice he went to the home. On the next occasion, there was a young man who was actually on his way to the grave to be buried. That's the next stage on. He was not in his own home like the little girl, but he was actually being taken to the grave. His body, his corpse was being carried to the grave. The body was there and his, his mother was walking alongside it when Jesus came along and touched the means by which the boy was being carried and stopped them. And he speaks with authority to stop this morbid procession and he speaks to this young man, arise. And this young man, again, sits up. Jesus, showing that he had power over death. And then the next occasion, maybe you can imagine who it is, Lazarus. Now, he wasn't in his home like the little girl. He wasn't even on the way to the tomb like the young man. But he actually was in the grave. He had been dead for some four days and his body was beginning to smell, as one of his sisters said. It was a, an awful scene. And yet Jesus comes to the graveside and he says, Lazarus, come forth. No doubt you've heard someone cleverly said that if he hadn't expressly called Lazarus, they would have all come out because Christ has power to call all the dead everywhere out of their graves. He has all power over death. He demonstrated in his life. And yet we see it ultimately in the fact that he himself rose in mighty triumph, the conqueror over the grave. And because he lives, the believer will live. And we should not doubt it. Because he rose, we, if we are in Christ, will also rise into glory. You know, that's, a, that's something that we need to grasp and to delight in and to dwell upon. You know, let me give you some further reasons why the Lord's people can be sure they will rise again. Do you know, dear believer, you are united to Christ. Our union with Christ is a, a truth and a doctrine that we don't grasp as much as we should. We are united to Christ, the risen Savior. He and we are one. You know, when you think about the reason why we're sinners, we were born in union with Adam. Before we opened our mouth or our eyes or moved a hand or foot, the reason why we were sinners is because we are in union at first with Adam. Now, with a Christian, all that has changed. We are not in union with Adam anymore. We are in union with the second Adam with the last Adam, with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so you see, when the end of the world comes, because he rose, we must rise. He is the first fruits in that he is the first one to enter into the glory after death, but all the harvest must come later. The first fruits is the guarantee 
of the whole harvest. Now let me say this. Am I speaking to somebody this night who is afraid because they're afraid of death? There's a sense really in which we're all afraid of death. It is an enemy. The last enemy. But my dearly beloved friend, if you are a believer, you've got nothing to fear. You do not need to fear the grave. Your union with Christ guarantees that resurrection to glory. You are united with him. And he lives. And you will live. And friend, Christ has redeemed not only the soul, but also the body. In other words, he, he paid the price not only for our soul to be saved, but for our body also to be saved. When Christ died and paid the price to God's justice for our sins, he paid the full price. He didn't pay the price simply for our soul, which is, of course, the most precious part of us, but he paid the price also for the body. One explains the body is the casket of the soul. The soul is that most precious thing of all which we have. And our Lord paid the price for that. Thank God that he did. But he also paid the price for the casket, which is the body in which the soul in this world lives. He paid the price for it. He will have it. He will have every particle of you. Every atom of your body belongs to him. He paid for it. He will have it. He will raise it in glory at the last Every believer will rise in glory. And Christ will have you believe a body and soul with him. That is his heart, his desire to have you with him at last in glory. And there'll be this wonderful transformation. And we, we alluded to it this morning. This great transformation must occur to our body to get our body to heaven. You know, our bodies as they now are are suited for this world. But our bodies as they now are, are not at all suited for heaven. You know, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God in glory. So a great change has to occur in our body. It will be a physical body. Paul talks about it in the latter part of this chapter. And we need to understand this marvelous hope that our body is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. You know, death is a a terrible thing. It is not in any way a good thing. It's one of the most foolish things in our age that we try to make death acceptable and pretty and light. But death is judgment. Death is an ugly thing and we must be realistic about it too. You know, too, too often people, they, they trivialize death, even celebrate it. And that is sadly true in Christian circles as well. But we, we don't celebrate death. Death is an enemy of man. Or, you know, our services are more, it should be occasions of, of seriousness. Death is the enemy. Death has come in because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Death was never meant to be a pretty thing. You know, death is ugly, awful, judgment. But beyond death, that is the thing. It is glorious for the believer. And our body sown in corruption will be raised in incorruption, sown in weakness but raised in power, sown in shame and dishonor but raised in glory, sown a natural body with all of those things that are there. But when it comes out of the grave, it will be transformed into something that we do not yet understand, likeness to Christ, perfectly suited to live with God in heaven forever and ever and ever, a glorious body, 
shining like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. That's the promise. The wonders of the resurrection. And to be in Christ is to have that hope because he rose again. We can know that this is not the end. That this world of tears and brokenness and difficulty is not the end. We shall all be changed, says the Apostle Paul, if we're in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you look to it? Are you holding on to these great truths? You know, when difficulties come, when we face uncertainty, maybe illness comes to us, maybe, you know, we're struggling along, maybe even death itself. Do we keep in view the fact that our Savior is risen? And because of his resurrection, we can be sure of our own resurrection. We can be sure that he wants us to be with him. You know, how quickly death can come, how quickly our life can be over, how we need to be prepared for that day. You know, there is no preparation for young or old, but only in Jesus Christ, Savior of the soul and of the body, the only hope we have and a blessed and a sure hope to all who trust in him, the risen Savior, our hope in life and in death. You know, it should thrill us. Our Jesus is alive, and he rose, and he reigns. Do you know, as I finish, I want you to see that this great truth of the resurrection is not just in terms of that, that future importance, and, you know, all the, the great truths and the theology around that. It's not just for that. That should inspire us and help us day by day. But there's also a very practical outworking of this, and Paul shows it right at the end of this chapter. And so if you just look, if you will, right to the end, verse 58, you know he's gone through all these wonderful things about resurrection, about a glorious body, about our final victory with the resurrected Christ. And how does he conclude it all? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You say, well, what does he mean? How could he bring all that to that point? Well, believer, in the light of this wonderful future, you need to understand that resurrection power is at work in you right now. And it will be tomorrow and the day after and all the days until the Lord calls you. And so we are to go on with the work that God has given us to do to be steadfast in it, to not be blown about from side to side, but to be immovable, to keep on with the good things that God has called us to do. And so let me ask you, do you have responsibilities at home? Do it as unto the Lord. Do you serve in the church? Do it to the best of your ability to his glory. Do you have someone on your heart, someone that you're coming alongside to, to point them to the Savior? Keep on loving them. Keep on serving them. Maybe you feel as though you've got some task amongst the Lord's people which seems so small, and yet you need to know that God sees your endeavors in that. It's precious to him. And so seek out ways that you can serve the Lord and be involved and, and go on doing it and let nothing deter you. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in his work, looking to him, looking for his strength and for his enabling. You know, we, we read that and we say, well, well, Paul, no one seems to listen. 
You know, no, no one seems to, to be moving towards the gospel. There doesn't seem to be any movement. There, there doesn't seem to be any fruit. People don't care. Keep going, says Paul. Your labor for the risen, reigning, living Christ is never in vain. And the Lord will either reward you now in this life when you'll be given to see fruit, new believers or those maturing in the faith and growing and blossoming or, or breakthrough in whatever service that you are seeking to be faithful in. Go on, the Lord may grant fruit in this life or you will see the fruit of it in the life to come when God rewards you and says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, we're not called upon to be successful. Success is something in God's hand, something that he gives. We cannot convert anyone. You know, it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? You speak of resurrection. You know, if someone goes down to Penzance Cemetery and goes and tries to, to call out the dead from the graves, well, they're not going to have much success. Only God can grant life to the dead. You know, if we think it's all down to us or to me as pastor to convert, we'll be in despair. Not one of us can convert anybody. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But we are to be faithful in seeking the Lord, in praying for his hand to be at work, preaching the truth, speaking to people about Jesus. We cannot convert anyone, but we can point them to the Savior and keep pointing them and praying for them. We cannot raise the dead, but God can. And let us pray that he would. And our labor in the Lord is never in vain. Either you'll have the fruit of it in this life or the life to come, or maybe even both. And you'll see good through the labors of your hands now in this world. And you will see God coming to crown you in the glory with exceeding joy. And he will say to you, well done. Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Our bodies sown in weakness in the grave, raised in power to beauty and glory and perfection, to be with him. All of his amazing grace and love and mercy. Friends, this resurrection day shouldn't end as the sun goes down. We should ever live in the light of the resurrection. We should ever live in the fact that our Jesus is alive, that he rose again, and indeed blessed are all they who put their trust in him. Do you believe? Do you really believe? Because if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. Saved from your sin. And in Christ, more than conqueror, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, to be forgiven sin, is to conquer death. To have a certain hope. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. To believe in him is to live eternally and to be able to say, O oh, death, where is your victory, O oh, Hades? Where is your sting? To believe in Jesus and to believe in his resurrection is to believe that he died for you and rose again to conquer death. Eternity approaches, my friends. And for those who believe in the risen Christ, we have certain hope and we should rejoice this night. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. He has triumphed over death. We have life everlasting. We will go to be forever with the Lord. Our God drives gloom away from the tomb. We indeed know that that is sure. For those outside of Christ, you have no hope this night. 
And I pray that you would come and that you would turn and you would trust. And that you would turn from hopelessness to certain hope in Christ. That is why Resurrection Sunday and Resurrection, every time we think upon it, is so glorious. Jesus has done what he said he would do. The last enemy is destroyed. We are secure in him. We have a wonderful future to be with him. What more could we want to be with him? May it be your hope this night. Amen. Thank you.